Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible, and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. This episode is a message that Rob delivered at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. You may be seated. When my wife, Katrina, was weak with illness, and I was feeling weak as well, we went into the Bible and we located 12 different passages about strength. And we studied those and memorized them and adopted them as our strength verses. And I did a sermon series and and we wrote a book about it called The Strength You Need. One of those passages that I keep going back to over and over again is this wonderful chapter in Isaiah. It is chapter number 40. This is the chapter that ends with the words, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. And if you're like me, we very often feel weak. Sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's emotional and sometimes it's spiritual. But the weariness of life can grind us down and we say, Lord, I need strength. Well, this Isaiah 40 is a wonderful time and place to find the strength you need. So I just want to take us through Isaiah 40 tonight. I want to give you just a word of background about it. The book of Isaiah may seem a little daunting to you because it's long. There are 66 chapters, but Isaiah was the most brilliant and eloquent of all of the prophets. His vocabulary was expansive. His ability to paint pictures is vivid and wonderful. And really, the book falls into three sections. So chapters 1 through 35 of Isaiah were addressed to the people of Isaiah's time in ancient Judah who were facing the crisis of a growing threat from Assyria, and the Assyrian Empire. And in fact, during this time, the empire of Assyria under Sennacherib, the general, they came into Judah and Israel. They wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel and they completely occupied Judah except for Jerusalem. And there was a ring around Jerusalem And all of the Assyrian soldiers there, nearly 200,000 were ready to defeat Jerusalem and completely wipe out Judah and take over the nation. And Hezekiah and Isaiah, the two of them, one a prophet, the other a king, but they prayed together and they withstood the assault and the Lord sent an angel and he wiped out the Assyrian army and Sennacherib went back in defeat to his palace where he was assassinated by his own sons. Now, secular historians, they wouldn't believe, you know, the secular historians, they they wouldn't believe that it was an angel that did that. But yet they cannot deny 
that Jerusalem never fell to Assyria, even though it was surrounded by enemy troops, and Judah never became a subject of the Assyrian Empire. So there's no way to explain that except from the biblical perspective. But the messages that Isaiah preached in Isaiah 1 through 35 are directed to Judah during that time. Now, the second part of the book is like the hinge, and that is chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39, and that is history. And Isaiah tells us the history of that invasion and how he and Hezekiah withstood it and how the Lord delivered them. And then he says a word about representatives from Babylon coming. And that's the middle part. It is history. We have sermons, and then we have these chapters of history. But then we have this amazing chapters 40 through 66, and we're back to sermons. But these sermons are directed to the exiles in Babylon who had not even been born yet. Because after Isaiah's day, the people died, Isaiah died, time passed, and 150 years later, the Babylonians came, and they did wipe out Jerusalem, and they destroyed Judah, and they took the captives to Babylon, and Isaiah preached to them, even though they came 150 years after his lifetime. How did he preach to them? through what he had written in chapters 40 through 66. It is a miracle of inspiration. It's as though God picked up Isaiah, took him 150 years into the future, and said, now I want to give you a message for those exiles in Babylon who think that all of everything of your plan is extinguished now. I want you to comfort them, and I want you to encourage them. So what Isaiah wrote in 40 through 66 was directed especially to the Babylonian exiles who hadn't even been born yet. Now, the liberal theologians say, well, there were two Isaiahs. It's the Deutero-Isaiah theory. There must have been two Isaiahs. But they don't understand the wonder of inspiration and how God can take a man like Isaiah and give him a message for his own generation, but also a message for a generation yet to come. But that's why Isaiah 40 through 66 is so incredibly comforting. And if you ever go through a period of deep distress and you want to go to a rich portion in the Bible that will encourage you, then just begin with Isaiah 40 and read through Isaiah 66. Some of the richest and most beautiful portions of Scripture are in these chapters which were originally addressed, addressed to these Babylonian exiles. So that's the background for this. And it all begins here with chapter 40. And verse 1, and the first word really is the theme for all of the rest of the book of Isaiah, comfort. The Lord now is going to comfort these people. They had been displaced from their homes. They had been run out of Jerusalem. Their temple had been burned. Their nation had been destroyed. They had sat down by the willow trees in Babylon and hung their harps on the willow branches because they didn't know how to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. But the Lord said through Isaiah, I am not finished with you. 
I know what I'm going to do. Now, I want to comfort you. And the word comfort occurs repeatedly in these chapters. It's the theme in one word of Isaiah 40 through 66, comfort. Now, the word comfort doesn't just mean to make you feel better. It means to make you feel stronger. Come fort. So with fort. And a fort is what a stronghold. Maybe you visited a fort or the remains of a fort that date back to the Revolutionary War or the Civil War. It's a place of, if you play forte, then you are playing louder. It is stronger. So when someone comforts you or when you comfort somebody else, and especially when the Lord comforts you, it's not just to make you feel better. It is to make you feel stronger. So the Lord says to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. They may be exiled. They may think that I've forgotten about them, but they are my people. You are his people. You are his person, says your God. The personal pronoun there, don't miss that. It's not just God, but it's your God. It's not just comfort, but it's comfort. My people, says your God, and speak tenderly. Notice that adverb. Don't just talk to them, but be tender. And literally this is speak to their hearts. Encourage their hearts to Jerusalem and proclaim for her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for. The Israelites had gone into exile because of deep corruption and idolatry and rampant sinfulness. And the Lord said, now 70 years have passed, ready for you to go back to the land, but your sin has been paid for. How was their sin paid for? Well, this section, Isaiah 40 through 66 tells us there is so much here about the coming of the suffering servant. And chapter 53 of Isaiah says, he has borne our sorrows, he has carried our griefs, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shear is silent, and he bore our iniquities on him and with his stripes we're healed. So Isaiah is going to talk a great deal about the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but he tells them here, before he even says all of that, he says, your sins have forgiven. When Jesus shed his blood, it was for all of his people of all time. Those before he died were saved on the basis of what he was going to do on the cross. Those of us who have been saved afterwards were saved on the basis of what he did during the cross, but it's nothing but the blood. And your sins have been paid for, And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So he is saying here, the Lord wants me to comfort you and tell you that a better day is coming. Your sins have been forgiven. And then Isaiah said, I'll tell you what I am. I am a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for your God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, the glory of the Lord had departed Israel. 
It was Ichabod. It had happened in the book of Ezekiel. So when the Lord led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they got into the wilderness, and they built that tabernacle, the glory of the Lord came down and dwelt in that tabernacle among them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and the Lord was among his people. And then in the building that Solomon built, the temple, when he dedicated it, the glory of the Lord came down. And Second Chronicles says that the priest could not enter into the temple because of the cloud of God's Shekinah glory there. But then the people had sinned so great, they had desecrated the temple. They had put idols up in that holy place. And Ezekiel, in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, describe how the glory of the Lord left and hovered in the air and disappeared, and the Babylonians came in, and the glory was gone. But Isaiah says, don't worry. The glory of the Lord is coming back. Just get ready for him. Now, later, John used this as a way of describing preparing for the coming of Jesus. John took this passage, and he preached it because he said, the glory of the Lord is coming, and he was referring to Christ. The Bible says in him that we saw the glory of the Lord. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So... Here Isaiah is saying, the glory of the Lord departed for a while, but he is coming back, and you've got to get ready for him. Just like in olden days, if a king went into a town, they would make sure that the way was, you know, clear for him to come. And they might level some mountains, or they might fill up some valleys and make the way easy for him. So Isaiah was saying here, I want to comfort you. I, the Lord is taking care of your sins. He's going to do something. You haven't lost everything. In fact, the Lord is going to give you more than you could ever imagine. It is coming very quickly. Just get ready for it. That's what he's saying here. And I think, don't you think that we need to be getting ready for the glory of the Lord? We need to be our hearts prepared for whatever the Lord wants to do with our lives day by day and for the coming glory when he comes again, prepare for the glory of the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, here we have a little break and from somewhere, maybe from the heavens, a shout comes, cry out. And Isaiah said, well, now what should I say? What should I cry? And the answer that came from heaven is, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. In other words... You aren't here on earth very long anyway. The Lord had done one is here all that long. This isn't a very good place to be. This is a world of woe. He gives us a lot of grace to get through it, and we're his representatives, and we should go through with a hope and a cheerfulness and a joy that is indicative of the Holy Spirit, but this is not a good place to live. We are in enemy territory here. So there is a certain brevity to life. 
I remember Billy Graham saying when someone asked him, a student asked him once at a school, and he was rather old at that time, and the student said, what has surprised you most about your life and ministry? Dr. Graham said, the brevity of it all, how quickly it has come and gone. And I feel the same way. It seems like just yesterday I was, uh, you know, freshman and sophomore in college. But the brevity of life for believers isn't a bad thing because of our eternity. But here's the thing. One thing abides without changing and without being refuted or overcome, and that is the word of the Lord. What God has said endures from generation to generation. It never fails. It will never expire. It has no expiration date. The word of the Lord abides forever. So, that word includes good news. Now, here we have the word gospel. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid and say to the towns of Judah, and here's our theme, here is your God. This is Isaiah's great message. These exiles, they had been saying, look at our problems. Isaiah said, look at your God. The exiles have been saying, look at our banishment. Isaiah said, look at your God. You have forgotten. You have taken your eyes off the Lord. The great Yahweh, the Jehovah, who never tires and never wearies and never sleeps, whose wisdom is unsearchable, whose knowledge is everlasting, whose omnipotence has no limits whatsoever. Look to him, to the one whose word endures forever. We're like flowers of the field. We come and go. We're mowed down and we wither and we'll be resurrected in heaven. But the word of the Lord never varies. It never fails. We can always look to him. If you are downcast today, the reason may be that you are looking within when you should be looking above. And you should say, here, I want to see my God. Isaiah, in these chapters, 40 through 66, wants to introduce Israel to their God once again. I think that's why these chapters are so wonderful. This is the theme. Here is your God, O Israel. You've forgotten about him. You've turned away. Your eyes are looking somewhere else. You're looking down. You're looking around. But I want to show you, here is your God. Verse 10, see the sovereign. The word sovereign, sov means all, and reign means to rule. He rules over all. The sovereign Yahweh Jehovah comes with power and rules with might, and his reward is with him. What does he do? He comes, and he rules, and he blesses. The Lord wants to come into your situation and rule it and bless you in it. He wanted these exiles sitting there in Babylon in the heat trying to think of what Jerusalem was like back in their great-grandfather's day and now it's no more. But Isaiah says the Lord is coming and he is sovereign. 
He's got everything under his control, and he's going to bless you. And verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who are those who have young? Parents. Young parents, new parents, parents of all ages. The Lord leads parents with their children. Children have problems, but the Lord is leading the parents, and he tends his flock like a shepherd. Here, Isaiah is taking Psalm 23 and saying, you know that shepherd we talk about when we sing that psalm? He is your shepherd, and he tends to you. My daughter is here, and our three daughters and my wife and I, we raised sheep for a little while. They were pets in the back pasture, and sometimes they would have a nick or a cut, or they were lonely sheep, you know, or they, they need people to be around them, and we just have to go and tend to them. And by tending to them, we'd have to say, what's wrong? We had a horse back there once who bit off the ear of one of the sheep. And I had to go out. I didn't know what to do. And then I remembered that phrase in the Bible, he anoints my head with oil, and I got a bottle of olive oil. And I rinsed out that wound, and the ear didn't grow back. I wasn't like, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus touched the guy's ear and it came back. (laughs) But it healed up. We all need to be tended by our good shepherd. Some of you tonight, you have some need in your life, and the good shepherd just wants to tend to your needs and to gather the young ones in his arms and to carry you close to his heart. I've carried lambs before, and it's really a, a very tender thing to pick up a little lamb and put your, your arms under him and hold him close to you, and that's what the Lord does to you. So here we have the Lord as our ruling shepherd. But then he goes on in verse 12 to talk about how immeasurable our God is. Here is your God. What's he like? He measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. I've flown over most of the oceans of the world at one time or another. Fly over the Atlantic, I've done that a lot of times. And you look down and it just goes on and on and on, but it's nothing like flying over the Pacific. Do you know that the area covered by the Pacific is roughly equal to all of the land area in the world? It's just so vast it goes down 32,000 feet And when you fly over the Pacific, you think you are never going to see land again. And then there's the, you know, the uh, Mediterranean and the uh, oceanic uh, areas around the, you know, south of Africa. Uh, Think of all of the water there is in this world. Now, the hollow of your hand is that little sort of indented place when you make your palm like that. So... In preparing for this sermon, I did an experiment, and I took a teaspoon and to see how many teaspoons I could hold in the hollow of my hand. And like after two, it was spilling over. But my hands aren't, I have some hand issues. Maybe you could get a little bit more there, but not much more. All of the oceans of the world, they would just fit in the hollow of God's hand as though they're just a teaspoon of water. Think of all of those oceans. And then he says, or with the breadth of his hand, 
has marked off the heavens. The breadth of your hand is the space between the end of your pinky and the end of your thumb. It's maybe six inches or so, roughly. Now think of how vast the universe is. You know, this Jim Webb telescope that's gone further than they have just announced, I think it was last week, they have found new galaxies far larger than the Milky Way. No one can imagine how big this universe is or how long it would take to try to find the limits of it. Where do you think the edges of the universe is? Nobody can even imagine that. But to the Lord, it's just like a little space here between his finger. That's how big your God is. And it goes on to say, or weighed who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on a scale or the hills in a balance. Now, how much dust and dirt and sand is there in this world? I have a five-gallon bucket, and used to, I could fill it up with dirt and carry it somewhere, or at least if I had two of them to balance each other out. But, you know, now I can still do it, but it takes more effort. But just think of all of the dirt, all of the sand on all of the oceans and all of the deserts. And to the Lord, well, it's just like, a little carrying something in a basket. All, have you ever flown over the Sahara or maybe the Mojave and the Southwest? All of that. But it's just like you're carrying a little Easter basket to the Lord. And then these mountains, weighing the mountains on the scale. I grew up in the Appalachians and I love my Appalachian mountains, but I've been to the Sierras, I've been to the Rockies. You have the Pyrenees and France and Spain and all of the great mountain systems of the world, including the Himalayas, the biggest. And how much do you think Mount Everest weighs? But take all of the mountains in the world and just imagine putting them on your bathroom scale. They don't weigh anything to the Lord. And then verse 13, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who did the Lord... Uh, uh, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now, this has to do with God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. How can you ever get to the bottom of everything that God knows? Sometimes we're not even sure that he knows what we're going through. But he knows all of that. He knew it 2,000 years ago. He knew it before the foundation of the earth. He knew it in eternity past. And he knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and he knows what's going to happen in November at the election, and he knows what's going to happen with all of these rogue nations we're dealing with, and he knows what's going to happen with the tribulation period, and he knows what's going to happen in heaven, and he knows that the, the past and the future just as equally as we know what's happening right now and better. And furthermore, God possesses the omniscience to figure out contingencies. He knows exactly what would happen if we did something. We know this, for example, from 1 Samuel chapter 23. This boggles my mind to think about it, but David was trapped in a city called Calah. And he said to the Lord, Saul was coming after him, and he said to the Lord, will the people of Calah surrender me to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David said, can I escape? And the Lord said, you can. So David escaped. But the Lord knew what would have happened if he hadn't have escaped. 
the Lord knows what would happen with all of the hypotheticals that don't really come to pass, but he, he knows all of that. For example, let's say that, that you have a student and he can go to Yale University or he can go to UCLA Berkeley, and you've got to decide which of those. The Lord knows the entire life that would take place in your son's life if he went to uh, Yale and exactly what would happen in the future if he went to Berkeley. The Lord knows the contingencies of things that aren't even going to happen. How can you explain that? How can you fathom the omniscience of our God? And you think he doesn't know what's going on in your life? This is what Isaiah is saying. He does know. And then he says in verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. So today was a day that, you know, you'd want to be out in your garden and you go out and you water something. You have a bucket there and you pour all the water out and shake it and a little drop falls out to the Lord that little drop is Russia North Korea China the United States Brazil all of the nations of the world the nations to him they seem so intimidating to us but to him they are simply a drop in the bucket I mean literally that's what he says here surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket, they're regarded as dust on scales. So if you go to an old-fashioned hardware store and you buy so many, you know, say nails, they'll put them on a scale and put a weight on the other side, and there might be a little piece of dust on that scale. No one would even notice it. But that's how much God regards the threats posed by the nations in this world. Now think of that tonight when you go home and you watch Fox News. And he goes on to say, Lebanon, oh, and uh, he weighs the islands as though they're fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. In other words, God is so great, you could take all of the cedars of Lebanon and cut them down and make a giant fire and take all of the animals in Lebanon and offer them as sacrifices, and it still wouldn't be anywhere adequate to the kind of worship and glory that God should receive because he is so great. Here is your God, O Israel. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson, and Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.